You already know what it is. Uh, Late Era is brought to you by the wonderful folks at Grady's Cold Brew, a beverage that all three of us have loved for years and been touting. We've been to the brewery, we've hung out with Grady, it's in the Bronx. They make a wonderful session cold brew that we love. You can get it uh, ready to go in a jug or box, or you can brew it yourself at home. The brew kit, get you know as many bean bags as you need to brew all year round, really. You can make it hot, and you can make cocktails with it, you can even bake with it. If you check out Grady'sColdBrew.com, they got everything you need to know up there. And from us at Late Era, if this is your first purchase from Grady'sColdBrew.com, you should put in the code LATEERA20, you'll get 20% off that first order. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, you're going to thank me. You're going to thank us this uh, spring and summer. I'm three in, by the way. I am fired up on Grady's. I'm psyched to tell you about it. Here's LATEERA. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Late Era, the podcast brought to you by Osiris Media, where we talk about the strange, poignant, funny, surprising late period records by classic musicians. We are rolling into the middle of season two, and we are getting away from one of our comfort zones, which is uh, the kind of boomer rock singer-songwriter icon, and instead are looking at one of the biggest pop stars of all time, Janet Jackson. We are looking at her eighth album called Demita Joe, which was released in March 2004, and It was unfortunately almost entirely eclipsed in the public consciousness by what happened a month before that, which was Janet Jackson's appearance as halftime performer at the Super Bowl that year in February 2004, and the now infamous moment when Justin Timberlake ripped off her a panel of her dress. We thought it'd be interesting to take a look at what, you know, the actual music that marked that moment for Janet Jackson was. You know, it's a real shame because, in my opinion, this is a pretty good album. It's it's a very sad story. What happened to her and the fact that this music is essentially forgotten. I was also thinking that this is sort of similar in a way to the subject matter of the last episode where, for very different reasons, like with Bruce Springsteen's Human Touch in Lucky Town, we have this moment that really definitively marks uh, an artist passing from the peak period of their career into uh, what we might think of as their late era. We're going to get into all of that in any case. My name is Andy Cush. I'm a contributing editor at Pitchfork, and I play bass in the band Garcia Peoples. My name is Winston Cook-Wilson. I play music in the band Office Culture and as Winston C.W., my name is Sam Sadomsky. I'm a staff writer at Pitchfork, and I make music under the name Bird Calls Inc., BCI, all kinds of stuff. Happy to be here. And uh, we have a guest on this episode who we're really excited about. We'll be hearing from in a one-on-one interview with Winston. You, Winston, you want to tell us uh, who we've got coming up? Yeah, I was really thrilled to be able to talk to uh, one of my favorite kind of, uh, I guess you'd say, experimental pop and R&B artists uh it's hard to sum her up but uh don richard um who started with the group danity kane in the in the 2000s and then went on to uh as a bad boy record signee she worked with 
Diddy on the Dirty Money, uh, Last Train to Paris album, which is just an under-heralded classic. And then she's made in the past decade a ton of albums as Dawn, which are just really forward-thinking, uncompromising uh, albums that borrow a lot from hip-hop, electronic music, and rock and avant-garde styles. She's collaborated with everyone from Drake to the Dirty Projectors. She's somebody that you know, is a perfect person to talk to about Janet Jackson. She's also got a killer uh, record coming out. Yes, she does. April 30th, uh, her new one, uh, Second Line, comes out. And uh, it's really great. Check it out. In terms of... Of, of this record I, I'm a huge Janet Jackson fan and I've been wanting to do this one for a while I think it's just like a cut below the albums before it um, I feel like it's really tied to the tr- tradition of her earlier albums her contemporary career started with Control which was this like sort of def- well it was this very defiant statement about the, the way that her father and the industry had sort of tried to package and, and present her as an artist up until that point. And I feel like this, in a sort of quieter way, is just as defiant. Like she had time to sort of change the subject matter of the album uh, after the Super Bowl controversy happened. Right. Um, and I think there were even conversations about taking some of the, the more explicit material off the record. And the fact that she decided no, you know, I think she said something like, I wouldn't be telling a truthful, uh, you know, giving a truthful picture of who I am if I if I took these songs off the record, I'm going to do it anyway. Like it's right in line with with her history of confounding um, what the industry sort of expects her to do, following her own path and uh, yeah, just defiantly doing her own thing. It also impressed me in the context of her catalog, which I was sort of immersing myself in for the first time. I just never really spent a lot of time with most of her records. And something I really admired about her catalog was the way there is this continuity. Like she has a very specific way she structures her albums Mm -hmm. and a very specific way she builds from one album to the next. And it really does show her commitment to that part of her art that she like it wouldn't have made sense for her to alter the format of this record or the content of it because of some controversy. And as a listener, I found that really rewarding to go back and hear, you know, how they all play alongside each other, all their different records. All right. Well, you know, uh, Sam, you do your thing. and I'll maybe do mine. Great. Uh, Well, welcome to this week's financial corner where I give investment on how to grow your portfolio. And this week, it's uh, sometimes we keep it to a simple sentence or something this week. It's just five letters. B-Y-O-F-B. Be your own effing boss. Uh, (laughs) Earlier this week, I had some bad intel from a guy. I'm going to keep him anonymous, but I knew it was a bad investment when he told me to do it, but I did it anyway, and I lost a huge chunk of money, and I I did not get into investing to be told what to do and make other people's mistakes. I want If I'm going to make mistakes, they're going to be my own mistakes. And for that reason, I'm my own boss. Be your own boss. It, I, just because I would love any specifics from you about anything, can you tell us what happened? 
what was the, I, the situation exactly? I personally can't tell you that because my finances are something that I hold pretty close to the chest. Uh-huh. But I do think if you scour different parts of the internet for a little bit, you'll find something pretty close to what I'm talking about. Sam, I'm curious about yeah. how this week's advice to be your own effing boss <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, has to, how you can sort of explain how it relates to last week's advice, which was, if I recall correctly, have a guru. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Seems to me sort of like having a boss. God, what a hack. Uh, yeah, I'll say <laughs> the advice, take it to heart, but live and learn, adjust, see what works for you personally as an entrepreneur. Uh, there's things I say that it's going to be more like, pl- oh, that's a nice idea. Turning on the playoff it- music here. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> I have that in the back of my head to have a guru while I, in the meantime, be my own effing boss. I don't think they contradict each other. But thank you for the question. Okay, this will lead us in. <clears throat> I once brought sexy back. Now people tend to think that... Uh, I'm not I'm not as sexy as I used to be and in fact the sex that I Kelsey I'm, Grammer No the sex the sexualness that I embodied is no longer in fashion I think and uh, I'm no uh, longer in Bert, sync Burt Reynolds I'm no longer in sync with culture Did I say I said Kelsey Grammer and you said no <laughs> No 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 to both I had to recently I didn't want to but I I I'll be honest with you I didn't want to but I have apologized for my role in uh the public perception of Britney Spears who I used to date and Janet oh, Jackson uh, Fred Durst and ja- <laughs> no and Janet Jackson <laughs> who I really respect as a pop artist. Okay, but, but it's Justin Timberlake. Uh, yes. You didn't even do an impression. Yeah, what was just that, talk, man? He's got like one of the most inimitable voices in pop music. How does it go? Do it. Do your Justin Timberlake impression. He's a soft. He's. This is how he talks nowadays. He sounds exactly like me. He's like, mm, I got something to say. <laughs> oh, that is actually. I'm sorry to Janet. <laughs> That's really good. I'm a Justin Timberlake. <laughs> You could have beatboxed low energy. When, that's why I think that we got it for the impressions. Maybe like just if we hyped you up a little or played like some intro music. Justin Timberlake gets us in, into the, the discussing this album is obviously the person who incited the incident on stage at the Super Bowl in 2004, which created the schism in Janet's career uh, that led to a huge backlash and FCC finds lots of complaints. I think one thing that at least I wasn't clear on until we started, until I started actually doing research on this record is there was essentially like a formal blacklisting of her music from MTV and VH1, yeah. which our own by, by Viacom, MTV had produced the halftime show for CBS and I believe Viacom has a stake in CBS that was airing the the Super Bowl and they own a bunch of radio stations. So like the sanctioning of Janet Jackson went beyond like, you know, people making fun of her on uh, talk shows and stuff like there. It was actually like the levers of the industry were being pulled to sort of make sure that she that her career ended, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um which is like fucking insane. Uh, what happened from the time you got up on Super Bowl Sunday <laughs> to, to the time uh, the, the episode took place during the halftime show? 
I, I, I don't want to relive any of that. All right. I mean, yeah, you, you don't mind if I ask you some questions about it, though? <laughs> the album was announced at the same time as this incident happened. It was supposed to be coordinated, by the way. Um, and I think the incident, you know, just the perverse attention on it led the record to still do pretty well, like much lower than her normal. And what did go to number two on the on the charts, but the singles did really badly because they were not getting airplay. But that's going from, you know, having a number one album on for six weeks uh, with the last one and number one single for longer than that. So should we let's give a quick crash course in Janet's career leading and uh, then we'll kind of get into into the into the album. So as you probably know, uh, Janet Jackson is a member of the famous Jackson family of pop musicians. Uh, Michael is her older brother. She was the youngest of 10 children, uh, born in 1966. Her full name is Janet Demita Joe Jackson. That's where the title of this album comes from. Uh, when she was a kid in the heyday of the Jackson 5, she was not uh, performing music. She wasn't necessarily thinking of herself as being a musician, uh, but nonetheless, um, she ended up on the Jackson's variety show that they had, uh, which took her at first, uh, into a career in TV. Um, she had a number of roles when she was a kid. Most famously, she was Penny on Good Times, a role she took, I believe, when she was 11 years old. Her first album comes out in 1982 when she's 16. And at this point, um, she's very much still essentially like a product that her father is selling, um, sadly enough. Uh, her father, Joe Jackson, is this famously domineering um, kind of ice cold guy who created the Jacksons as a pop phenomenon, but by all accounts was not a very good father to them at all. Uh, famously, he told them that they had to call him Joseph. They weren't allowed to call him dad. Uh, Michael says that he that Joe Jackson beat him with a tree branch when he was a kid. Um, so when she puts out her first two records, uh, she doesn't have a whole lot of agency. It's something that um, her dad wants her to do. They're these kind of bland teen pop uh Sometimes fun and disco-y albums, but often enough, I almost felt like I was listening to Paula Abdul or something when I was listening to them. They're just like very calculated attempts at uh, mainstream, frankly, like white mainstream appeal. Um, neither of these albums do particularly well. At one point, Janet decides she doesn't want to be in music at all, and, and Joe Jackson tells her too bad. He tells her that God has the plan for her, that she's going to be a musician, and she has to keep doing it. Then in 1986, she's able to sever her business relationship with her father. She says it's one of the hardest things she ever had to do in her life, and she makes this album called Control. Uh, which is the first of her amazing masterpiece pop records, uh, the first in a in a long run of them. Uh, she hooks up with these guys, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who become her chief collaborator collaborators for most of her career. Uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are members of the Time, the Morris Day Band. That's sort of like the Prince Associates, Prince opening act. With Janet, they really go on to define the sound of R&B and pop music, like in the late 80s and early 90s. Really incredible, vibrant, kind of futuristic sounding 
pop music album doesn't really sound like anything else in that it's this kind of like producer driven, technology driven thing. There's not really a band playing on it. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are playing everything and she's this indomitable presence at the front of the music. Control becomes a huge, enormous hit. Tops the Billboard albums charts. Five of its singles go top five. Quintuple platinum. From there, she makes another amazing album, Rhythm Nation 1814, uh, which is another moment of her kind of bucking the industry's expectations for her. Uh, There was pressure on her to make another album like Control. And Rhythm Nation is like Control in certain respects. The sonic palette is not altogether different, but it's like harsher, it's a little darker, it's almost like an industrial album at some points. And also, um, she presents it as this concept album about kind of the state of the world, race, poverty, drugs, TV, and really solidifies her status as um, like an auteur who is in control of every aspect of what she's doing, down to the videos, which were extremely ambitious, the outfits, the album art, all sort of is this kind of holistic vision We move into the 90s with Janet, uh, an album that, as Winston was saying, sort of feels like the sounds that she's uh, exploring on Demita Joe are kind of starting to crystallize on Janet a bit. It's Rhythm Nation and Control are both like aggressively almost upbeat, whereas Janet becomes a little more smooth, a little more nocturnal, a little more mellow, a little more music to have sex by. Uh, and she's just continuing um, this upward trajectory. It's another huge hit. Around the same time, she stars in Poetic Justice with Tupac. Her career is on this kind of like unstoppable upward arc. The Velvet Rope is her next album, maybe the most sonically diverse album in her catalog. Another amazing record. Uh, You can put it on and like, there's a song on there that sounds like corn. There's a song on there that sounds like footwork, even though it comes way before... Uh, that has actually crystallized as a sound. Highly recommend listening to that. Yeah, that one really blew my mind yeah, when I was listening else. over the weekend. It was a real example of me listening to it and just being like, I did not know that like production was at this level in the 90s. I just thought, totally. you know, it sounded like Kalela or something. It really, really impressed me. Velvet Rope is like a very personal album, as she described it, and has a lot to do with like power and relationships. BDSM and also like same sex relationships have made her kind of an icon in the queer community too. So a lot going on with those two records. And if you don't know them, I think that they're just two of the best pop records ever. So much R&B as we know it and pop and like, uh, yeah, like kind of alternative pop music. Just, I don't think it would really exist without the sound of those records. I would say that um, if you are the sort of like dude rock listener who I assume um, comprises like a a big part of our audience. And we are in some ways those dudes ourselves, we can admit. Uh, If you are at all like skeptical that Janet Jackson is an artist that uh, you might be able to get into, I would really encourage you to check out The Velvet Rope in particular. Um, If you have any sort of openness to sort of forward thinking, futuristic uh, pop music, 
I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that that album will totally blow your mind. All For You comes in, in 2001. And from there, she's starting to kind of open up from Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. They're very much a part of it, but she's just experimenting with more sounds. That's kind of like a party record. Like she went through a, a divorce and this is kind of like her enjoying the single life. It's, it's equally experimental stylistically. It's really all over the board, but it's really TRL friendly. You know, it's very um, bright, kind of her commercial peak. And then after that, she tries to figure out what to do next. She spends 18 months, which is way like three times longer than she spent on an album before trying to figure out what Demita Joe is going to be. I mean, that's something that's completely lost is how much effort she put into this record, how many different kind of phases it went through. There was a point at which she was going to be like doing really hard edged electronic music, collaborating with basement jacks and stuff. And I think the final album reflects that kind of diversity and approach, but it, it's like it's it's in a very different way and like a kind of like smoother kind of like islandy way engaging with kind of old school R&B as well as like contemporary hip hop stuff. Maybe we can quickly, before we get into the interview with Don, say like, how would you describe this music or, or what stood out to you about it? For me, there are two kind of distinctly different sounds on this album that I think, bo- both of which I think are really cool. One is like, you know, there's a stretch of songs in the middle of the album that's somewhat nostalgic for this sound of like when disco is morphing into 80s R&B, the kind of like synthetic funk disco thing, but sort of merges that with Timbaland style, um, like mid 2000s kind of club friendly R&B production. You know, you might get like the kind of tablas or like some, you know, some exotic touch that Timbaland would add. But then the chord changes and the melodic moves feel like they're coming out of, you know, this like sort of 70s R&B tradition. Like there's certain moves that kind of sound like Michael Jackson songs, certain moves that kind of sound like almost Stevie Wonder chord changes. And like those two kind of approaches rubbing up against each other is really cool. And then towards the end of the record, there's another thing that it does, which is this like, there's the song Warmth, which is like probably the most openly sexual uh, song on the record. Uh, and the sound of it is like almost meant to like stimulate, simulate, and I guess also stimulate, like a sort of intimacy between her and the listener uh, where the music almost fades away to like nothing. It's like so minimal. It has this kind of ASMR quality that Winston is talking about. Musically, it's really kind of doing its own thing where it's just like a, it's like a whisper. You know, it, it feels almost like Al Green or something like that in a totally different kind of uh, contemporary way uh, where it's just sort of fluttering by you on the wind almost. And that's a really cool sound as well. Well, we should say that warmth and moist are part of it. Our duo warmth is yes. supposed to be her giving oral sex to a man giving and moist is about receiving yes something i really liked about this album is that it's conceptually really unified but it does move in like these sweet like movements through different genres and like andy said there really is a throwback element to some of it right down to a song title like r&b junkie but it does sort of dissolve at one point into a lot more atmospheric, textural stuff. I think my favorite song was Truly, just because it is really vaporous and 
does feel like a moment on the album where it's like if it's following i don't know like the course of like this ecstatic honeymoon phase between two people it does feel like sort of a moment of transcendence you know because there's like that suite at the top that really feels like dance music and then there's like the old school r&b music and then there's this sort of spacey surreal moment and to me that was the thing about this album that i thought was the most exciting or the most unique within her catalog and then there's that song at the end just a little while which is just such an early 2000s jam like it reminds me of the spice girls or something but it was cool sounds like avril lavigne a little bit yeah definitely i really like the the first four songs a lot uh which totally. are both the kind of more like aggressive sort of hip-hop dance music oriented songs and they also are the main ones that play into the kind of overarching concept of the album which is these sexual persona strawberry bounce which is my favorite song kanye west also is a co-producer on it and it's just really kind of uh tense thing almost where you're kind of waiting for it to drop in like the bass to drop it, it has like all these surprising terms really intricate productions and the same with the previous two Demita Joe and Sexhibition the biggest hit I think is All Night Don't Stop that's the one that most people know that samples Herbie Hancock Hang Up Your Hang Ups those are the ones that I, I come back to the most um, but yeah then it definitely devolves into this almost ethereal atmosphere yeah it reminds me of like uh, I found this like episode of Alice Coltrane's 1980s like public access show where she's just like playing synth pads and sort of talking about spirituality over this ambient music she's making and I was like this stretches of this Janet Jackson album kind of reminded me of that specifically those spoken passages sounds awesome let's uh, get into hearing what Dawn thinks about the album she's a fan of the album and how uh Janet, who she met, is a big influence on her music. So thrilled uh, to be talking today to a very special guest. Uh, some of you may know her from the pop group Danity Kane on the Making the Band show on MTV, who have come out with a lot of great music over the years, um, or perhaps Dirty Money, the Last Train to Paris album with Diddy, which is a favorite of mine, but also a tremendous solo career beginning uh, in the 2010s up until now that explores all sorts of daring territory stylistically, um, a different electronic music styles, the Golden Heart, Black Heart Redemption trilogy, just uh, amazing. I'm especially a big Black Heart fan. She's got a new album coming out April 30th that uh, I've gotten a chance to listen to. It's really great. Second Line and Electro Revival, which is taking a lot of hits from your New Orleans upbringing, full of inventive production use of your versatile voice and just like a real genre bending ride which is why i thought what a perfect person to be talking about janet jackson with so yes the amazing don richard is with us today thank you so much for having me i that that is a incredible i don't even know how to come after that that was amazing um <laughs> but i i appreciate you i'm a huge blackheart fan as well um introducing this new project i feel a lot like um second line has a lot of influence from the black era, um, especially with me choosing to be more sonically um, free, right? And really pushing the idea of genres. And I could not have thought of a better way to be a part of this podcast because you're speaking of someone who I feel like as an artist pushed every genre, especially with the producers she worked with, with like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and then later on with her entire career. So this is like such an honor to be able to not only 
be on this podcast, but also to speak to someone who I feel like has influenced a lot of black female artists to dive in different realms mm-hmm. uh, in genres. Yeah. I feel like for people of a, of a younger generation or maybe people who don't really pay attention to Janet's music, just think of her as sort of a straightforward pop or R&B star. But really, there's so many influences from electronic music, rock, and things like that that go into it. I don't really know, you know, how to put her under an umbrella. I I always equated her to pop uh, first. I thought she was a pop darling from the very beginning, even when she was doing more soulful approaches. And the only reason why I say that is because you can't do a record like Black Cat and all of a sudden think that like she's limited. I mean, some of her 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 earlier works from Pleasure Principle to Black Cat were a, a streamline between pop rock um, and as well as R&B. So I just I immediately, especially when you start adding the eight count, which she established herself in a space where very few artists um, truly understand, especially as a dancer, um, right. because I danced first to put your approach to the dance and the art of dance with your records is so, uh, people don't realize how hard and difficult that is because you have to translate that conversation to the stage and to the account. And she did it in such a way that transcends R&B or pop uh, or she did it in every genre. Um, And very few artists have bridged that gap where they can put an eight count against multiple genres, right? Right. Um, I think we discredit that, that she, you know, communicated on both both levels. She was genreless, but also the conversation between choreography and music. She never said, "Okay, because I'm doing an eight count, it's limited to R and B, or like you know, it's limited to pop." You know, like a Britney Spears or a Madonna. She transcended that and say, "I'm going to actually do choreography within a rock element, within a yeah electronic element, within a soulful element, and I'm going to show you the idea that it can be all things." Michael did it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to All For You album and there's actually that skit where she's kind of, you kind of hear her doing, uh, like working through a, a routine and like learning the choreography, just thinking about her as a dancer. But I'm, I'm curious, maybe like um, your kind of earliest experiences with Janet's music and kind of your history with getting into her and, you know, being influenced by her. My introduction to Janet was the A count. Right. I love the music, but as a dancer, it was the first time uh, there's only two artists that affected me that way. Women, two female artists, because, of course, Michael and his choice of movement is just brilliant. But choreography, Mm -hmm. the understanding of it was Madonna and and Janet. And as a black woman, I didn't have we, we didn't have a lot of women to look that look like us that were presenting themselves in the pop realm. Uh, so Janet, I tended to gravitate to her as a dancer, even though I love what Madonna was doing stage wise. I mean, early Madonna, when you'd see her on stage in the choreography, she was the dancer she was using was always powerful to me, especially for queer, the queer community. But what Janet and her choreographer was able to do uh, within the element of dance was so beautiful because it started to pay attention to the dancers. And I think uh, Missy Elliott is another one that did that, but mm-hmm. that was later. Janet was way before, you know, before that. And I think to see an actual formation change, to 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 see the input of technical structure within dance, modern, interpretive, jazz, those were being put in the movement of the records. 
Yeah. So all for you, black, uh, pleasure principle. Uh, all right, all right. Oh my God, all right with the zoot suits. Yeah, yeah. God, it was just mind-boggling to me because I, as a dancer, I mean, I already loved music, but just the idea of, of putting that coil high clean, it was just so clean. And if you look at her intricacy within the record, Jimmy Jam and Terry applied the 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 hits and the, the structure and the production with that choreo so every sound was paid attention to within that choreography and for me as a dancer that was powerful i love that she paid attention her dancers were just as powerful as her music mm-hmm. and she treated that relationship as such that's how i fell into janet and i never left her after that because i just felt like no matter what genre she went to you know like when when velvet rope happened that was just like we like velvet rope was insane but it didn't matter what album she put out the dance was always important the way she moved was always important uh and if you check out her early work when she did snl Mm -hmm. and she did don't stop like out of control and her play with sexuality uh and and how you never really realized how feminine she was and how like into her body and into like female empowerment she was because you were just jamming so hard you didn't realize there was deeper messages being said that's when i was like i i have to stay with her so my introduction to her was dance right i find it interesting yeah just to hear you talk about about dance and just her presentation people talk a lot about michael jackson as this revolutionary music video artist but not i mean janet was hugely revolutionary in that in that respect as well but i think you know there's something about sexism or some kind of image of like who's an auteur and who isn't that makes us not really focus as much. I guess outside of like the Rhythm Nation thing, I mean, that's still very iconic imagery, I think. Oh, but absolutely. But notice I didn't even mention that, exactly. you know, because right. to me, that's the typical choice. But when I think about Visionary, like I said, all right, was the Zoots that it almost she put theater on, you know, on a visual aspect as a music video. It was really beautiful. Uh, and I thought it was, you know, it's the simplicity of pleasure principle. And then going into something like when you look at all for you and just the, you know, the Afrofuturism in her record with mm-hmm. um, Buster Rhymes. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I just think, you know, it's hard, especially when your brother is this monolith right and 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 sometimes she they play a shot they, they don't separate them right they just put him up there and she's kind of in the back drop we don't really give janet as much of the respect that i think we should in the same way we give michael um but the truth is as an actress as well as a an artist she has transcended every boundary every like idea of what a female artist was in that time and even now and i will always say even though she is a visionary, I always look to the dance aspect because I don't really think we truly understand the work. And very few artists uh, can dance just as well as their dancers, so much so that you the lines don't blur. Like mm-hmm. they, it almost feels like you're just watching performance art. And very few artists can do that to, 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 to be so intricate, uh, to be able to deliver musically, but also be just as powerful within the dance, uh, especially in the way she's doing it. I'm, I swear to God, like it, it's not that kind of choreography, that intricacy within that, and then to visually do that on your, you know, her music videos, but then to create it to stage, that is not easy. And what she has created, very few are able to, if any, can replicate that Yeah. at all. Yeah, uh, she thinks about her art so holistically, I feel like. I, I thought it was interesting to read about her as an actress early on, just not really being sure she wanted to 
pursue music because she wasn't like a super technical singer. You know, she kind of really is one of the people who's so revolutionary with layering their voices, not being like a soloist, being kind of like a force in a block of sound. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's been so influential on R&B, so much music mm -hmm. now. I was I was thinking with Demita Joe uh, of of your records, and you employ like a lot of interludes and kind of create a seamless journey with your records too. And I, I was wondering what you mm -hmm. thought about the record. I mean, there's all these different things going on. It was supposed to originally kind of be this hard hitting dance record, but then it ended up having all these kind of like throwback R and B and like mm -hmm. smooth islandy tunes and collaborations with Kanye and then this more kind of ambient stuff as well as super inventive records like Strawberry Bounce mm -hmm. and electronic stuff like that. I think she knew she at this point she could do more, right? And I think sometimes when you have the labels pushing you and everyone's telling you what you need to do sonically, you can it can be a, a lot. I, I, I couldn't even imagine what Janet was going through because she really was alone in her world, right? There weren't any other Black pop girl. You had Aaliyah, Brandy, all these girls, but they were gravitated toward a more R&B approach. Mm -hmm. And though they were, you know, like Aaliyah, again, Timberland and what they were doing were branching forth, they are all later than Janet. Janet was kind of by herself within this realm where she was pushing and they were all non-Black women around her. So I think that was a very difficult, she could do so much, but she also was visually stuck because people wouldn't let her, I think, I think really bridge to what she could possibly do. I think Demita Joe was really the one of the one of the few of her albums where she was just like, I'm going to show you the, the possibilities. Right. Because when you have something like Sex Exhibition, which is, oh, I love that record. Uh -huh, if you yeah. listen the, the cadence of that record. Like that isn't, like she was just going for it. But then you have Don't Stop, which again, like the way that was choreographed, the way that was, that song was built for dance. So good. But then you have the, uh, just, uh, just a little, just, is it called, um, it's called, uh, yeah, just a little, yeah. which is a more, rock, which is a more rock. I mean, that, that it's, it's a rock record. Yeah. Um, and then the island, you know, influence, and then the the Kanye record, which is to me traditional, like you going for traditional rhythmic. I think this is proof. Demita Joe is proof that Janet had no no label. Like she could she could present music sonically with whatever way she wanted to, um, whether people really got it or not. But I think Demita Joe was one of the more album, you know, one of the albums that was more slept on because she pushed the gambit on being all over the place, but having a cohesive album. She was able to do all this versatility, but then have a through line. Uh, and when you mentioned vocal production, I think it's interesting because you're right. Um, the layering um, is something that a lot of uh, incredible vocal producers at the time. I mean, you see Sex Exhibition, Dallas Austin did that. Mm -hmm. When you talk about Dallas Austin and 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 uh, LaShawn Daniels, these really cool producers that were coming up in the time where they had Brandy, they had uh, Aaliyah, they had Janet. Uh, they understood where layering was powerful. That's that's basic going back to the church. The idea of having multiple yeah. voices, but then manipulating it in a processed way to create chant, to create a voice where it feels and appears to be in multiple places at one time. The stack. I think that the, at that period in time, especially in the 90s, you stacking became pop, you know, like a, a powerful tool, especially with women who had voices that were softer. Janet was one of those people that even Michael with that tone with a tone, uh, Michael could push his voice a little bit more, but Janet it was soft-spoken so it was trying to create 
um, something that felt larger than life with a voice that was thinner. Uh, And I think what they found was that Janet had a beautiful voice that was built to be in a process situation. And I think that's what created for something really beautiful. And you hear it in Demita Joey in the introductions of her records, Warmth, another record on Demita Joe that's really beautiful. And again, I love that, right? Because when you have artists uh, coming up trying to figure out how to uh, make something bigger than what it is, especially, right, when you are an R&B singer and this is that you're not giving belting and yelling because we always associate R&B music, right, with vocalists that are just, Mm -hmm. you know, belting for the, the hills. But the truth is, we have it shouldn't be that right we should be able to have layers of what type of r&b artist can be but originally you know her coming with a softer voice i feel like she was then had she had to go through pop because pop was accepting of that but as a black yeah. woman that's very difficult because we don't give black women and op- or black artists period an opportunity to stay in that space so she never compromised the bottom and the soul of her voice by adding those stacks adding those kind of counter melodies but putting them against tracks that were pop rock you know electronic they were they were this beautiful collision that created her sound and i think that powerful combination is um one that i i hope to this day will be um a study sheet a blueprint for artists like me because that's really what initially i'm doing now is putting soul the base of new orleans within my music but also being able to stamp it in any genre and showing the possibilities of what you can do with your voice beyond just the traditional sense of what it's supposed to be right if you're in pop it's supposed to be whispery and talky mm-hmm. if you're in r&b you're supposed to be singing for the hills if it's in rock you're supposed to scream and have grunge and it's coming from your throat if you're from electronic it's only the top line and that's it <laughs> what happens when you blur those lines yeah. where each one can sit in its space. And I think Janet was one of the few that started that. Uh, one question I have sort of to that end is like, I mean, you entered the music industry kind of around the time of this album a little bit later. I mean, at the, at that time, do you think that people gave like, like before the Super Bowl thing, let's say, do you think people really gave Janet credit for kind of being the, the person who's overseeing this vision? Because I feel like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis rightfully, I mean, they created, they had this sound that's just Great. so, you know, but yeah. I, th- those, those, the producers and the, and the people that you're talking about, I, I think that it, it's taken time over the years for people to appreciate that someone who's borrowing from a lot of genres to make these, these cr- incredible sprawling pop records that, that it was her vision. Do you think that she had enough credit for being kind of an auteur of the musical yeah. vision itself? The idea that you borrowed is an interesting choice of words too, right? Because I don't think she borrowed it at all. I think I think she knew like again maybe you you know at that point in her career I think she knew what she wanted to do. She was doing it. Jimmy Jam, Dallas to be able to use 17 different producers to say I want to do a record with Kanye, I want to do a record with D- Dallas. That's a, that's her knowing I being fearless and understanding right. that she knew what she want. And she liked all those places and she lived there and she did what she wanted to do within that space. And I your I I do believe she didn't get the credit for it. Most women don't we're not looked at as producers. We are looked at as the artists and men build us the product. Very seldomly do we give women the credit that they are the creators of their own mm-hmm. vision. If you listen to her lyrics, Jimmy Jam and them are incredible. But as men, there are there's a limit to what they understand about a woman's body, about sexually what they want to talk about. If you listen to Janet's music, it is extremely sexual. She's very aware of what she is as a woman. And it is blatant, like and I think that that's something that nobody can, you know, no one can teach, especially those type of artists. I think they can give you direction. But I think visually, 
especially at this point in her career, because, you know, we're talking about Jamita Joe was 2005 um, era, like that type of time. Uh, So at that point, she's well established, like the 90s, maybe when Jimmy Jam and them first came. Definitely. She probably had a little help trying to figure out as a musician where she wanted to go because she was only an actress at that point. Um, But at 2005, I think, you know, she was posing topless. The cover itself for Demita Joe is her topless. Like I think knew exactly how she wanted to portray herself to be, to even use Demita Joe, which is her middle name, to be able to like say, I'm gonna show you a real element of who I am. I think Velvet Rope on, you know, Janet was purposeful. Velvet, Velvet Rope, Demita Joe, and even the album before that and it, before 2005, I think once Rhythm Nation Pleasure Principle surfaced, she was well on her way as to understanding how she wanted to dive in, I think. Um, And because of that, I don't think she borrowed. I think she explored and found where she liked herself. And I think a lot of that had to do with, again, understanding that she had touched multiple elements. I, I really believe the art of the dance solidified her as to never being pigeonholed into one genre because she was touring, going to, you know, Asia. I don't know when she went, but I you could tell within the futuristic elements of her, her style, like All For You and those type of visuals, definitely influenced by uh, Asian culture. Like she was having technical choices within her space, even the way she was dressing, that I think she knew she was going beyond genres and exploring to put that within her her realm. Yeah, I mean, bringing up sexuality in relationship to this record is really important, right? Because it, it's it's so much about that and these ideas of Demita Joe and Strawberry and these different personalities. <laughs> and the Bob. That, that's my favorite track. For I sure. love it. We danced when I was in the NBA because, uh, again, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten discovered yet. This was like the year, like it was before, and uh, I was dancing in the NBA. Strawberry Bounce was one of that we learned that that we had a hell of choreography to that. To mm. That love that record. Yeah, incredible. I mean, it's fascinating that this, this particular record, which had such a progressive view of female sexuality and sexuality in general, as kind of different musical styles that she's moving through interacting with like different sides of sexuality and these persona i feel like uh velvet rope or something also is dealing with this but you know i think people perceive that as like a darker thing like you know bdsm like there's a darker element to this Mm -hmm. and what's interesting about this record to me is she says at one point right like it's just sex right like this is normal this is how i live life yeah, she always knew that. And it was and this is to me how much I loved her, right? Because if you notice visually, Janet has always been naked on her covers and on her but if you notice her live, she is always layered clothing-wise. There is multiple layers on her. She's like wearing pants and then a skirt and then a shift and then a long sleeve and then a jacket. Yeah. It's baggy and it's she very seldom it's a beautiful mix that she does she plays with your mind and it's really interesting because she delivers herself sexually within branding and but but then when you listen to the music it's vocally produced in a way that you never really understand what she's saying it's masked between all these things so you hear the sex and the lyrics but it's delivered in this innocence in this way that's so submissive mm-hmm. and and so you package it and you live you love it but the the beat and the music and the choice of it is so beautiful that you almost forget it right. then you see her perform it and she's in multiple layers of clothes hitting every intricate design of it and so you forget you're singing about sex you're yeah. just enjoying this ride that is such a beautiful delivery because when you think about it in that time of pop 
Madonna was doing the same thing, but delivering it overtly sexual. Madonna did it in such a sexual way that we already knew what we were singing. And she got, you know, pegged for it because it was delivered in a different way. But it's such a beautiful thing the way Janet did that. Yeah. And so, yeah, Velvet Rope was a darker a sexuality. But I think even Demita Joe was quite you know, quite tongue in cheek. Um, but again, delivered Strawberry Bounce was delivered in this almost happy. La, la, yeah, la, yeah, la. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is so much harder to do and um, so clever. And she does it often, even yeah. Don't Stop, severely sexual. Mm-hmm. But like, if you listen to the. It, like she never gives you enough to feel like it's inappropriate because she really believes it's so natural. And you never feel like it's overtly sexual, even when the, the, the lyrics are sometimes out of pocket. It's like really good stuff. <laughs> that happens on this record. Yeah. yeah you're like, She's going for it. That's very difficult to do. And she does it consistently, which makes me believe that is exactly who she is, um, which makes her a beautiful specimen for women in general, because we want to be able to have our sexuality be open and never be be looked at as filthy, dirty. Mm. And if we choose to want to be filthy and dirty, that is all in our choice alone. For someone who was so much, yeah, there, there's this kind of innocence, their lack of a better word, gentleness, matter-of-factness that you're saying is in contrast with an artist like Madonna or something, just like the way that that Super Bowl thing was talked about was like she was so brazen it was so aggressive it was like a crime against culture i I just want to get your perspective like when that happened what went through your mind like how did you react to that and and how do you think about it now that incident because i mean all for you was like one of her biggest commercial hits that was only a few years before she's coming off of that level of immensity and this one incident completely changed her commercial people were just being so vicious they didn't promote that record no, no, they didn't. Can I can I get really honest with you? Yes. The, the crazy part is they loved her brother and he grabbed his penis daily. Right. That was what he was doing for doing. Yeah. And we loved him for it. Right. Get into that truth. Get into that truth, right? So like just let's start there. That Michael Jackson is known for grabbing his crotch constantly, like and gyrating <laughs> with it. Like that's a thing. Yeah. And he is the king of pop for it. Someone that she didn't plan on doing, someone took her journey away and she was ostracized for it. And she wasn't even in control of that. Just give that parallel. Yeah. How do I feel about it? It wasn't shocking to me because Janet has been singing about sexuality for decades. What I think shocked people more was the nipple ring that she had on that was incredible. I was looking at it like, can I buy that nipple ring? It's <laughs> the first thing I thought of. But for other people, they were shocked because we go back to the reality of the way she has been able to brand herself has been so brilliant that we forgot that the music she's been selling for before that has been all sexual. So is right. it a shock that... She, first of all, has her nipple spheres? No, right? So that's my first thought. Second thought is what's really interesting is she didn't control that. Someone else did. And we we immediately put her on a cross for something she didn't even have any power of. Why? Because a white man who is way more popular to them, they'd rather give him the benefit of the doubt than the Black woman who is the sister of the the most incredible pop star of all time. They are royalty. They are royalty as a family. We were willing to ostracize someone who has built a royalty within music 
and take the side of a young white kid because we love him more. That is the truth of, and I think that's a reality that black artists, but black women especially go through daily. There are so many things wrong with that. The first one being, again, a man grabs his crotch and we love him for it. Right. It's her brother, which is even more mind boggling to me. Right. And then beyond that, we crucify a woman who didn't even plan that because we feel that it it obviously has to be all on the black woman. Uh, and then you're right. They didn't promote her. They didn't do anything. That in itself is so wild to me because I can't get past the fact that she is a Jackson, like the fact that she is so massive that they were able to stop her career the way they did. Yeah. That name being that massive, they couldn't. That's wild to me. I, I find so poignant, like that she did, you know, she did the interviews, she did the you know, the late night interviews, the performances. She was out there doing the things that artists do. And every interview, she would be faced with these questions and just like jokes and from like Jay Leno or whoever it is. But th this thing that we're talking about with the way she presents herself and the way she views it, she is, she's so controlled. She's like, yeah, it's fascinating to me that people think this way. Like, yeah, re releasing to me to Joe after it as this incredibly sexual record. Right. And so she had to be defending that. And she was just right. like, well, this is what? She lost the opportunity to really promote an, an incredible album because of it, right? And she lost the opportunity for people to see her in all these different genres because this album was so multi-genre. We, we missed an opportunity to see a Black woman shine in multiple facets because uh, of something that she didn't even create uh, herself. And, and, and you can notice in her interviews and everything, she didn't really know how to attack it because she just, to her, it didn't make any sense. Like it was just a titty. Like it was just her breast. It wasn't, and then she didn't do it. So it's, she kind of just got murdered for something that like a mistake, number one, but also two, something that is very natural to breastfeed or to do, like it, it was such a natural thing uh, through life that it, it just is mind boggling that a rock star can be on a stage with no shirt on and gyrate, you know, because again, the Super Bowl has had rock stars perform and they gyrate and sing and all that. And that's all fine. But the fact that we saw an accident of a woman in her breast mistakenly being shown for 10 seconds, we don't know how to act. And even now, you know, I was looking at uh, when when Beyonce decided to uh, be a part of the, the Black Lives Matter and everything and white people went into a flare because mm -hmm. it was like Beyonce shouldn't do that. And it was like they forgot she was black because she's been so neutral in the way in which she delivers her music. The moment she had finally had a voice because Beyonce had never been that vocal. She had done it within her own privacy. There was like just like surprised that a black woman would then follow black culture. It's the same thing, right? We love Janet singing sex, but then the moment, you know, like it's an outrage when we realize it, but we love Madonna and Madonna had a crucifix on the stage burning it. She had a bed on her stage and was literally having sex when she did um, Like a Virgin. The song is called Like a Virgin, <laughs> but we had no problems with that. Yeah. So again, I always get is shocked by it because I just can't get past how royal they are, like how beautifully they have brought, contributed to the music industry and how even with all that work, it'd be different if Janet was at the first part of her career, but she's Janet Jackson at this point. And that still was enough to crucify her, which makes it fearful for Black artists like me who are way smaller at that level because of the monolith if the people up there who are black will get torn down for something as minor as that, what does it mean for black artists like me?
because to me, she's way too established to be stopped in her career for something that she had no say in. But the truth is they did. They 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 stopped her bank. They stopped her, her opportunity to move. And then she became known as the, the Super Bowl incident and nothing else for a while. What do you think people's perception of her is now? Like, has she ever sort of been able to dig herself out of what happened in, in the in the view of the public? Like... I mean, obviously, that's yeah. totally subjective. There are many different views of this. She's Yoda. You know, to me, she will always be Janet. Ja- like She will always be a pioneer. Like she will be the greatest in, in what she's done. But the truth is, I'm going to be real with you. The fact that we don't speak at Janet at the same all level as we speak about Michael is a reality. Right. Yeah. It yeah. stops like that. Like, cause you, like you say, all for you was out of here. Like she was about to be out of here, out of here. You know what I mean? That's a truth. You know, like we talk about Michael like this and we talk about Jan like, oh yeah, his sister Jan. Like we, it's just, it's not the same. And I think a lot of that has to do with in the prime of her life when she was about to really just go beyond stardom and, you know, going to insanity, um, she was stifled. But, you know, to us, to, to black community, you know, she's, Janet, you know, she's always going to be this thing. Uh, But I do think in pop culture, we don't recognize her the way in which she should be recognized. Um, Like, you know, not just as an artist, but as a as a producer, as a as a a visual artist, we don't talk about her and we can lie and say we do. But Mm -hmm. we don't don't give her that same almost otherworldly awe that we speak of with the greats like Elvis and, you know, and Michael, and we don't give her that same respect. We don't. And for me as a dancer, she will always be that. You notice most artists don't really show love to their dancers or their choreographers in a way that is almost like the same level of stardom as an artist. Janet was really one of the few that took her her own choreographer and put her on this pedestal where us as dancers really was like, okay, I want to be a dancer. Where people were like growing up saying, I want to actually dance for other artists, like as a profession. Mm -hmm. She was one of those artists that inspired dancers to actually want to be a part of movements because of what they were doing for their dancers. No one had there. That's like I could count on my finger what kind of artist that is. That's what she is for me. you know, and I will always speak of her in that way. Uh, and I do think that incident stifled her uh, and, and kind of clouded the the reality of what she really contributed to pop music and also multiple genres as it relates to visual um, and as a as a dancer. I just wanted to ask, do you, have you ever had an opportunity to, to meet or, or Janet or talk to her? Or like, yeah, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so J- Johnny Wright was our manager. Uh, Danity Kane's manager. So Johnny Wright managed all the big ones, Brittany, Janet, Justin. That's yep. the reason why Justin Timberlake was a part of that is because Johnny had all of those artists in one umbrella. Yeah, We were able to meet Janet. She was so soft-spoken. She was a huge fan of Danity Kane at that time. I just remember being like, how could this beautiful soul ever be looked at as anything but like gorgeous like she was so kind and so um inspiring and she gave us advice on how to like get through the first beginnings of our our, our tour because we were just starting our tour and even bigger her choreographer her her dancer so janet had originally she had the original her female uh, choreographer but when she started doing more stuff she had gill gill still choreographs for her gill was our choreographer um, so Gil kind of had us in rehearsals and Janet was there and Gil let us meet her and she was giving us pointers because we also dance as well. And I just always felt like at that level, she didn't have to be that kind. She didn't have to be that beautiful. Um, 
and she was breathtaking. One of the few artists that I've ever met that was that kind and that willing to give advice um, and that um, that willing to loan her her team out to others like Gil and them at that point were so huge like Gil they are they're like dope like that at that level so to be able to get the moves and and understand the eight count within the tutelage of her own dancers was something that as a kid I couldn't believe I was getting that on my body like I was being able to learn and the way we moved like the the record sucker for love if you ever see us mm-hmm. toward the middle of our careers when we were dancing for we were on the back to basics tour with Christina Aguilera we had that choreography on us and you could tell the difference you could tell it and for her to give that to us, you know, give Gil to us to be able to like, man, it'll, I'll never forget the way she sound, the 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 gem she dropped, uh, and also the level of her giving her team to us to wear that choreography, uh, because there's nothing like it was was powerful for me. Wow. Yeah. Well. <laughs> no, it's the truth. It's the truth. Yeah. Well, your fount of knowledge and thoughts about her and the extent to which she's clearly made an impression on you is really a beautiful thing. And, you know, obviously makes sense with your body of work, but, you know, it's really meaningful to get your perspective on this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else do you want to plug? Or obviously the record, April 30th, it's amazing. Yeah. I, but also, too, like, I think it's important. Like, I I really appreciate you thinking of me and seeing the element of what it means right now for Black women to be super supportive of each other and to come out and talk about these things because you're speaking about women who are, I would not be here had her her journey not happened, right? Mm -hmm. There are are levels of like how hard and how difficult it is to, to, to push the envelope when you look the way you look. No one ever tells you that your color is going to dictate the way people see you and put you in boxes as you progress through. I always look at the reality of how big that name was and how that name did not save her. You know, when people are non-black, their names save them every day, so much so that we have a president that his name alone was able to facilitate him to be the president of the United States and all his mistakes and all his nastiness. That is a real thing where someone can climb up a ladder and be just as vicious and horrible and we choose them as president. But someone who has built a legacy um, can be can lose it all you know, uh, because of the color of their skin. I think what Janet went through is a reality that no matter how big the name, if you look the way you look, you can have a different trajectory. And so I always want to applaud moments like this when we're able to show love to artists who have broke barriers, built like broken ceilings, um, and is able to give us an opportunity to move an inch more because we can't mess up. I don't think people really realize that as black artists or just people of color, whether you're gay, queer, whatever is not the norm, you don't have the ability to be loose in anything. You can't even have someone else make a mistake on you because then your, you know, your journey changes. And I think it it is imperative to understand the amount of work that we have to put in our art to make sure that every move we make keeps us in our space because in any moment, it can be lost just because we are not like everyone else. So it's an honor to speak about her greatness, but it is also imperative that we continue to do it and have the dialogue because I don't think the world knows. Some people yeah. are mean and vindictive, but others just don't know. I don't think people truly know the amount of work and the reality, especially when we want to go against the grain, against what you would perceive 
artists like me to be in, whether it's country, rock, hard metal. Think about that. If a black artist wants to be in heavy metal or like death metal or like, what is that journey for them? Because I don't think that's going to be an easy one. And every move they make, they have to be 30 times better to even see the opportunity for them to even be in that space. That conversation needs to continue to be had. So hopefully we can move the dial and have more artists like a Janet like a me in this space to have these conversations so that it's not just one of us. That's so powerful. Thank you so much yeah. for talking to me. This is, this is amazing. So like so, yeah. so great. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Have a good one. You too. Really great convo. Really uh, powerful. And she was really uh, just so excited to talk about her here. Like it was just, it was just great that she was so down to do it. Yeah, um, that was really wonderful to listen to. I mean, I was really moved by what what she was talking about, that Janet Jackson, despite being Janet Jackson, like one of the biggest stars in the history of pop music, was still vulnerable to the industry just kind of completely torpedoing her career over this incident that anyone who wasn't a black woman, basically, uh, might have gotten quote unquote, gotten away with, not that it was really anything she needed to, to get away with. Having been born in the late 80s, you know, one of my first exposures to Janet Jackson was this incident. I wasn't super tuned into like her, her music in the 90s as a kid. And I think that the level of destruction of her career that happened was so thorough that like, if you weren't around and listening to those earlier records, like, it can give you the impression that she was never even actually that famous. Yeah, Like totally. it's almost been this sort of like historical erasure of what her legacy actually was, which is just in- absolutely insane. Yeah, it circles back to a question that I feel like we ask every now and then on this podcast, which is who gets to have a late era, mm-hmm. you know, because it's Dawn brought that point up that is so true where it's like, what message does that send if this one move can really like stop your career and its tracks like three decades into it, you know, like at the time, I think she was just in her late thirties, but they basically treated her like she was done. Like, that's it. Like you had your moment, you ruined it, you know, when really it's sort of like, well, it's almost like they were like looking for a reason. And when I say they, I mean, just like, the industry itself and white audiences and label heads and stuff. But yeah, it does send a chilling message. As far as who, who the specifics of who the they are, I think it's worth pointing out that like the head of CBS at the time, Les Moonves, who was like instrumental in uh, the blacklisting of her. And like, there's some reporting that says he basically did it as a personal vendetta because he was like embarrassed, you know, that like CBS's name has been dragged through the mud or something like that. You know, like he's no longer in that job because he was a serial sexual harasser of his Mm -hmm. employees. That like, it's just like, isn't that just so sadly sort of typical of this sort of story? Like this guy who actually is using sex as a weapon in like horrible ways is in this position to like just completely end the career of someone who's just exploring her sexuality in like an artistic sort of beautiful way. It's just, there's just like a really bitter irony to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just shocking to go back and 
Reminds me of kind of like looking back at Monica Lewinsky coverage and stuff, just like what the humor was like, how people people handled it, just like the late night interviews and the reviews like of the record. I mean, there's such a rich, deep-seated tradition. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit before, but just such misogyny and rock criticism. It's kind of like disgust me to be involved with it so you know what i mean like if you read these reviews yeah the rolling stone review which is like pretty egregious uh opens by saying as far as this cd is concerned janet jackson's sin was not in exposing her breast during the super bowl the sin was in stripping down without titillating anyone Mm. overnight she destroyed the highly sexualized persona she'd been cultivating for the last 10 years and undermined Demita Joe, which is all about her sexuality. Later on, it says, instead, Demita Joe alternates between Jackson trying to play fantasy object and every girl, neither of which she really seems to be. This is in a uh, not quite so uh, big publication, but Slant Magazine's review at the time Uh, Most people realize that there are more important things in life than getting off for Janet. That moment has yet to come. Oh, geez. Uh, uh, (laughs) Janet is an artist whose image is bigger than her voice and whose evolution can be charted by the amount of clothing on each album cover. Um, But I will say, like, in looking through the reviews of this, I was struck and sort of encouraged, not that it ended up mattering much, that there were quite a few people in high-profile places who were sticking their neck out and saying, this is fucked up, what's happening to Janet Jackson, and this record is good. Most notably, um, Khalifa Santa wrote about it in the New York Times. Yeah. In in a positive way, and I think the sort of takeaway uh, line from his write-up of it is, the album is even sleeker and sexier than its predecessor, All For You, and in saner times, that would be enough to ensure its success. But this is a profoundly insane time for Miss Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of a tangent, but one thing I was thinking about reading those lyrics, and I feel like I can talk about this as a critic who's probably guilty of it myself, like I've probably written a few clunkers. But if you look through these reviews, the amount of lyrics quoted, it just makes me wonder, like, what are people's what are critics especially like the white men who are assigned to review this album so like so many of them i'm like what do you expect from a janet jackson album like they're like quoting like phrases at a time like they expected it to be like oh like are they sitting with the album in the lyric book like yeah there was one review that was like she like the songs are filled with plays on the words coming and it's like well it's like an R&B album about a young relationship that's having sex a lot. Like, I don't know. There's just this unwillingness to seek out the craft of it or just this obsession with like, well, I don't like this. She is like being vilified. Like, let's find something objective that will speak for itself. And then just filling their reviews with all these quotes. I don't know. It bugged me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like this sort of like, you're clearly unwilling to sort of accept the entire premise of like what this music is and what it's trying to do. So like at that point, like what are you getting out of trying to critically engage with it? Quickly, I mean, we're talking a lot about how it like sort of ruined her career. When we say that, it's just like none of the records after it got anywhere near that level of success. And I find the, the next record kind of a poignant thing 
Uh, it's called uh, 20 years old or 20YO. That means it's 2006, so it's 20 years since the Control album. So it becomes this kind of way of, it's like looking back on 80s music and like the music that influenced her. So it's like super nostalgic and also ha- is pegged to this moment when she was radical and respected that set the tone for her career. Jermaine Dupri, who was her boyfriend, produced a lot of stuff on it. It's kind of a lot more by the numbers than the previous albums. Then Discipline came out in 2008, and that was um, kind of like harder hitting dance music stuff. But notably, she did not like write anything on it. Terry, uh, Jimmy Jim and Terry Lewis were not involved, so it really felt like in a confused place and it, it was heavily produced by Jermaine Dupri and then she didn't release anything for quite a while and she had some contract problems she didn't release anything to Unbreakable in 2015 which I actually think is a really good album but it's definitely a self-conscious like return to form Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are involved it's very like idiomatic kind of pop and R&B for her that, that hardly charted at all one thing I'll say on, as a sort of encouraging note is that I think in the last few years there has been a sort of like public kind of social media driven um, campaign to kind of have Janet Jackson mm-hmm. be like re-recognized as really one of the giants of pop music history. And it does seem like there's a certain amount of groundwork that's happening that like maybe she could put another album out and the cultural moment would now be like right for her to come back, I think. Yeah. Um, Justin Timberlake's sort of uh, public apology about the Britney thing. I, like there are, it seems like the, there's kind of movement in the cultural consciousness in the right direction. Look, I'm telling you again, this program is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew, the official sponsor of Late Era. And if you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com, you can check out what they're all about. But let me tell you, it's just this beautiful chicory New Orleans style cold brew. Comes in various flavors. You can get it ready to go in a jug or a bag or a box, or you can just brew it yourself at home. I do that. It's amazing. And it gets me through these podcasts. You really got to taste it to believe it. If you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and you enter the code LATEERA20 with your first purchase from the site, you can get 20% off on us, okay? You know what we like to say here? We like to say, thank you, Grady. Praise Grady. We love you, sir. We love your product. This brings us to the final segment of the show, Fantasy or Delusion. By now, if you're a long-term listener, you know we have a two-way metric for grading each album that we talk about. Uh, If it's a fantasy, it's an album that we like. And if it's a delusion, it's an album we dislike. Uh, The the grading system is sort of our tongue-in-cheek Uh, reference to Billy Joel's classical album, Fantasies and Delusions. I guess I can go first. I mean, it's it's definitely a fantasy. Every song on it is is really good. Like, it's one of these track lists that you look at, especially considering all the skits, and you kind of uh, think about the mid-2000s era that it's from. And at least for me, I'm like, there's going to be a lot of, like, CD-filling fluff on this album and then you listen to it and that's like really not the case at all. Every song has a distinct personality. Um, It's structured in this cool suite-like way where you're kind of being uh, moved through different um, moods of music. Like I said before, even uh, the skits contribute to the atmosphere in a really cool musical way. 
the the metric I try to go by is like, would I recommend this record to a friend? Um, and definitely, like, if it was a friend who's never listened to Janet Jackson before, would I say make Demita Joe the first thing you listen to? Definitely not. But if you have any interest in her music at all, and maybe considered this period uh, to be somewhat less than. I would say that you will find a lot to love uh, in this album. It's definitely a fantasy. Yeah, it's a fantasy for me too. I loved listening to it. And listening to Janet's whole discography, one thing that was rewarding was it seemed like from a really early point, she kind of had one foot in pop music and then another foot outside of the mainstream because I feel like she felt that she herself was not mainstream and that she had these more futuristic and sort of almost like novelistic ambitions. And so her work became more representative of that than of what was happening in pop music. And just for like comparison's sake, I feel like I never really had a moment with the Michael Jackson discography mm -hmm. because by the time I came to it, most of the albums to me sort of just felt like vehicles for these huge singles and then maybe like five more songs that I probably will never listen to again. And Janet's albums to me are kind of the opposite, where it's like a lot of them have songs I know on them, but then the deeper you get into it, the more you're fascinated by what else she was doing at the time and all these weird tangents her records go in and the points they make. And in that way, it's kind of like, yeah, the critics didn't like Demita Joe and the industry kind of turned on her. But I think she felt like her music wasn't for those people. Like, of course, critics weren't into it, you know. And so it's like, well, if you look at the actual legacy and you look at artists like Dawn, who are making really forward thinking music and are like, I couldn't have done this without Janet Jackson's music. Or, you know, you listen to like something like A Seat at the Table, you know, or I was thinking about even more so When I Get Home when I was listening to this, especially with like the more amorphous kind of like jammy tracks. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, there's your legacy. You know, you, you can't really like fake that. That's like a whole generation of artists who are exploring this sound that's kind of bubbling back into the mainstream even. And so for me, it's just a really powerful, rewarding discography. I really loved hearing Don Richard talk about it too. Yeah, it's a big fantasy for me. Maybe like second or third favorite record we've talked about. I guess third. Um, I, Janet's a huge artist for me, especially in like the past four or five years. It's like a comfort zone for me to go back. The, the albums are so long and rich and I hear something new in them every time. I just never get sick of circling back to, especially like Janet and the Velvet Rope and Rhythm Nation. I definitely prefer her, in terms of like willingly listening to the records, uh, head and shoulders above Michael for me. Uh, she's influenced my music a lot. I don't, I don't know. What to, to, I'm just saying this to, because anyone who's listening who doesn't take Janet Jackson seriously and doesn't uh, like her or something, doesn't like the singles they've heard, please, please reassess, reassess that because some of this sounds like it was made yesterday and some of it is like pretty out and pretty challenging and some of it's just incredible songwriting and production. And these records just take you on a journey. And Demita Joe is structured on a level, yeah, that's 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 right uh, on the level with with her most uh, famous work. There there's several really really standout songs like "You Don't Love Me," just really forward thinking stuff about sexual politics, which and and power, which was always a thing for her. Yeah, please check it out. Please let Janet Jackson into your heart.
want to thank Don Richard again. That was just so thrilling that she agreed to do it. I felt like we were going out on a limb, and uh, I'm just I'm just so psyched about it. Please check out her music too if you haven't. Sam, what are we listening to? Uh, talking about on our ne- on our next episode. On the next episode of Late Era, we'll be talking about Eat, Pray, Love, which is Mike Love of the Beach Boys' three-part <laughs> opus mm. featuring a cookbook, a solemn collection of prayer, and an album of love songs to his wife. Well, that sounds it's, really good. And it's, it's an better in- than you think. Yeah, it's an intense album and by far the most scared I've ever been in my life. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Later is hosted and produced by Winston Cook Wilson, Andy Cush, and Sam Sadomsky. It is edited by Winston Cook Wilson and mixed and mastered by Ian Wayne. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJB. Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media. <laughs>